Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio for Friday, September 27, 2013. This week, the Z-Man and I are on the road, so we're going to flash back to an episode we had with Dr. James Scott, Ph.D. This follows our interview last week with Dr. Edward Sobeck, both of whom talked about some very interesting up-and-coming technologies with respect to mold and bioaerosol investigation and assessment. We hope you enjoy the show. We've remixed it, and we've also cut out some of the uh, other items that sometimes we do that would no longer be applicable. Have a great day, and we'll be back next week with the next live episode of IAQ Radio, which will actually be number 300. So this week is episode 299. Enjoy. Joining us later will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Today's segments include an interview with Dr. James Scott from University of Toronto and Sporometrics. We're going to talk about the past, present, and future of indoor microbiology. We'll do our halftime segment, come back with the second half of our interview, and of course the roundup will bring in Dr. Weil. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. Don't forget we have ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC renewal credits. Just send me an email at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We'll get you set up. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Dr. James Scott is a professor of occupational and environmental health at the University of Toronto, and he specializes in the recognition, evaluation, and control of microbiological hazards in the workplace and community. He is also the laboratory director of Sporometrics, a large accredited Canadian environmental microbiology laboratory currently celebrating 20 years in business. Dr. Scott has published over 50 journal articles and book chapters on environmental microbiology, and his work was recently the subject of a feature in Wired Magazine. He also gave the keynote presentation at this year's IAQA conference, and it was titled Past, Present, and Future of Indoor Microbiology. Fascinating and uh, current information. We look forward to the interview. Let's see if we have... Do we have music for this? Okay, we've got a little musical introduction, then we'll bring him on the line. On the inside of a red-eyed news, to the mold that lemon new. First antibiotic two kills, bacteria, and this is Dr. Scott, do we have you on the line? 
you do. Thanks, guys, for having me, and thanks for all the fanfare. Oh, thanks no for problem. joining thanks us. For I don't know if you can make out that, but it's it's uh, an interesting. Uh, there's some interesting. <laughs> Uh, what do you call it? It's some interesting dialogue going on on that song. Yeah. But anyway, uh, what we're curious—I'm curious—how did you get started in? You know, what what piqued your interest in indoor environmental microbiology issues? Uh, well, I guess uh, a, a, what seems like a long time ago now it was uh, it was in the early, very early 1990s. I was uh, looking at uh, going to graduate school and doing a graduate degree in in an area of biological sciences around uh, around mold, and I was kind of interested in, in looking at questions that really hadn't been asked by biologists. I see. Really, for a long time, biologists have stayed away from uh, areas like the indoor environment. I mean, that's not really true 20 years hence now, but uh, it was at the time that, uh, that biologists had long kind of avoided it. So it struck me as, as both a very relevant area and also kind of an interesting biological system. You know, Cliff, did you want? Yeah, and no, I just wanted to ask. Well, it, you can follow up if you want. Well, no, it's, I was curious about the company you're involved with now, is the Sporometrics, and how you got involved with them, and, and maybe is it just a traditional laboratory, or do you do a little beyond the traditional microbiology laboratory? It's a mix of things, but yeah, we do we do more than uh, more than uh, looking at, uh, at spore traps and uh, and air samples. We do some plant uh, diagnostic work. We do work on, on like patent claims and a bunch of uh, more specific work, uh, mainly that would involve molecular genetic uh, testing. So, But I'd say, you know, probably about 80% of the stuff that we do still uh, maps the kinds of things that you and your listeners would think. You know, your keynote presentation at the IAQ conference and some online posts that followed caused some very lively conversation. So we wanted to give you the opportunity to get this information out to a larger audience who couldn't attend the conference, and we would like to ask you some follow-up questions. I guess, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about the history of indoor microbiology? Sure. Well, it's, uh, I mean, this is, it's not a new area. Uh, it's, it's an area that really, uh, you don't think about it, but it started uh, in 18th century, mostly with the work of, uh, of Antony van Leeuwenhoek, who was an old uh, uh, Dutch microbiologist, microscopist, and uh, he was the fellow who really first uh, developed and popularized the microscope. And uh, Leeuwenhoek uh, was interested in looking at all kinds of things under his microscope, and it was a, you know, it was a pretty simple apparatus. It was a, it was a metal plate with a hole in it and a little pin on the other side of it, and little hole held a drop of water, and it was the, uh, the drop of water that actually was the lens of the microscope. Uh, so, you know, you had to get your eye up really close to the thing, but uh, Van Leeuwenhoek uh, looked at all sorts of things under his microscope, and uh, he uh, really popularized it to the extent that, uh, that in, the, in the 100 uh, or 150 years that followed him, he really created a culture of, uh, I'd say, gentleman scientists who you know, looked at everything from the stuff under their fingernails to their house dust and their excrement and, you know, everything you can imagine. And aerobiology, as we know it today, kind of grew out of that uh, that uh, culture of gentleman scientists of, of the, uh, the 18th and 19th century. So towards the, towards the end of the 19th century, Louis Pasteur uh, took it a step further and actually started culturing uh, microorganisms, although he didn't necessarily know what they were at the time, but... Uh, uh, cultured them out of air, and he was especially interested in, in yeast that ferment uh, uh, materials to make wine and beer and things like that. But um, interest that uh, that Pasteur brought to the study of microorganisms uh, led people to think that you know maybe we could look at the air uh, as a source of the agents of human disease like cholera, uh, and that led to to a couple of decades worth of people sampling the air looking for the agents of cholera. And that's really where it began. So a lot of the, the what we do today, the, the sorts of air sampling methods that we use, really those built on, on work that uh, Pasteur and some of his contemporaries did in the late uh, 19th century, around maybe 18th. I'm, I'm curious why you're doing a presentation on the, the past, present, and future, and I know most people are interested in the, the present and the future of this issue, but I'm, I'm curious, why you, you spend a lot more time at the conference. We don't have as much time here, 
going over the historical perspective, can you fill listeners in on why you felt it was important to bring up that historical perspective and, and get people more familiar with it? Well, I, uh, yeah, I guess I, I think um, uh, we're in, in folks who are interested in indoor air quality, we really are building on the work that, uh, that these scientists long ago uh, uh, initiated. And there, there, there hasn't been as much of a recognition, I think, in the community as there might be of the importance of that history. Uh, so I'll give you a quick example. I've got a colleague uh, at the, in my group at the university who's an industrial hygienist, and you know he's, uh, we've long had this dispute that uh, that volumetric air sampling uh, he alleges started uh, by was started by the mining industry in the 1920s and 1930s, and this is this is patently false. Aerobiologists were sampling uh, particles in the air using volumetric methods long before industrial hygienists were doing it. So I like to tell him that, you know, uh, what he likes to think of as, as being uh, the science of, uh, of studying particles in the air that was really advanced by, uh, by uh, industrial hygiene, started by uh, aerobiologists and indoor air guys. So he doesn't like it when I say that. <laughs> well, they actually, they started before we had electric electricity and, and batteries and all of these things, and, and it was a fascinating instrument that um, was developed to assist with actually collecting volumes of air. Can you just mention what that was for the listeners? Yeah, it was crazy. It was, uh, you know, of course, there was no electricity, so how do you pump air without a, without a pump uh, that runs on electricity? You use water. And, uh, and the fellow who, who did this was a contemporary of, uh, of Pasteur's, uh, Pierre Miguel, and he was also in Paris. And Miguel had this thing that uh, contained four liters of water, and the water drained down through a tube that was connected to a little P-trap, and the, the, the gravity drainage of water through that P-trap created suction through a hose that he connected to basically an impaction sampler. It wasn't really all that diff- different from some of the things that we use today for, for IAQ uh, sorts of methods. And using four liters of water, this is the thing that's really stunning, he was able to pump cubic meter of air through this device. It's, it's really remarkable. And, uh, you know, you can look at his drawings, and uh, you, can, you can almost predict what the collection efficiency of this thing is going to be. <laughs> really, really a stunning, uh, uh, stunning work that these, that these guys did without very much to, uh, to work with. Yeah, it is fascinating. I, I have the diagram. I have a copy of your paper, and maybe we'll, I hope listeners can get a copy of it. We'll, we'll ask you later if we can give them the... Uh, the link or something like that, because it's fascinating reading for those of us that do this work. And then before we go on to the present, I I have one more question about the past. And that is in reviewing some of the information in your paper, it occurred to me that some of the sampling that was done hundreds of years ago, even some of the earliest sampling really was fairly um, accurate, I guess, with when you look at, at least what w- what was known, and even compare it to what was done here recently over the last I don't know thirty or forty years, they had a pretty good idea of what was going on with respect to what we know about at this point in time, or what we did know over the last fifteen years. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, many of the samplers that we use, the slit impaction samplers, and there 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 are all sorts of uh, variations on slit uh, impactors. You know, most of those trace their uh, development uh, back to the 1950s, maybe late 1940s, early 1950s with the Hearst uh, spore trap. And, you know, very little has changed. We've tinkered with the flow rates a little bit. We've adjusted the, the width and length of the split. But essentially, the, the, the technology remains the same. So when you look at the work that these, uh, these older workers uh, uh, did... Um, in many ways, it's very comparable to the kinds of things that we, that we do today. So, you know, when you, when you look back at, at the data that they collected, you actually can learn a lot about it. There's a, there's a great paper that, uh, that everyone should know about. Um, it was air sampling data, but it was air samples that were collected in a flight over the high Arctic by Charles Lindbergh in the 1940s. <laughs> And um, you know, Lindbergh took this uh, this polar flight. No doubt, there were some there were some side uh, military interests in uh, in doing it. But uh, at the time, he collected air samples, and the air samples were analyzed by microscopy. And we look at the the photographic plate in the paper that was published, and you can identify spores of all, and pollen grains of all kinds of uh, all kinds of uh, fungi and plants. 
and uh, yet these are these are about a mile above the uh, the Arctic. So, you know, thinking about long-range transport, uh, which is an area of, of great interest now, particularly in terms of, of climate change and understanding airflow patterns and, and all kinds of things, we actually can learn a lot uh, from looking at some of these older data. You know, one more old one before we go. I, I don't think did you mention Darwin and the fact that he was one of the first people that collected bioaerosol samples? I, mean, I don't. I don't think he did. I don't think he did. And I, I know I talked to Dr. Wow, and being a good German, he'll be happy to know that Darwin sent his samples to another fellow German. Is that accurate? Yeah. So uh, that uh, that I would say I'd put that right at the beginning of uh, of aerobiology, and I did so on my talk. So Darwin. Uh, as everyone knows, uh, set out on uh, on a ship called the Beagle uh, that uh, ultimately ran through the uh, Galapagos Islands, and he was quite interested in looking at uh, the shapes of finches' beaks and things like that. And from that founding work that Darwin conducted, we know a lot about evolution today. But uh, Darwin, uh, you know, he was a wasn't just interested in birds. He was a he was a naturalist. He was interested in corals and all kinds of things, and uh, he was a good observer. And he noted that when the when the ship passed uh, uh, just to the west of the uh, uh, the African coast, as it was making its journey into the southern hemisphere, there were dust that accumulated on the on the deck of the ship. Despite that he was about uh, maybe 500 miles off land, so uh, it's kind of curious to know where these dust came from. He swept up a bunch of them and and had them sent back to a colleague of his, uh, uh, Ehrenberg, who was a German. Uh, uh, biologist and Ehrenberg looked at them under the microscope, and they were uh, uh, microscopic uh, plants and animals, basically uh, the shells of coccoliths and foraminifera, things that are that are planktonic organisms. And we know now that the uh, that those organisms increase in their numbers when iron-rich dusts from the Sahara are blown by the trade winds and dumped into the ocean. So uh, while uh, there was, I guess, the expectation when they looked at those samples that they wouldn't find anything living. Uh, in fact, most of the organisms, most of the particles that they found in the dust were at one one point uh, alive. So it was really transformative, um, you know, back in the 19th century to, uh, to to think about things like this. You know, we when you gave your presentation, I don't know if when you wrote it or, or started writing it, you you were looking at the present uh, issues in indoor microbiology. And it seems like, I don't know, in reading the paper, it seems like as you were writing it, you started to realize that the future is kind of here now in the present to some degree. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could give us a little overview of what your thoughts are on the present of indoor microbiology. And am I somewhat accurate in saying the future is already kind of here? Uh Yes, I mean, we've uh, really, since, since Pasteur uh, and, and Ehrenberg, uh, most of the work that we've been doing until really the last decade has relied on culture and microscopy to understand biological particles in all kinds of environments, uh, you know, including clinical microbiology. Uh, you go to the doctor, you get a throat swab, the throat swab gets sent to a lab, and the lab uses culture and microscopy to characterize the agent. So it's and what we do in IAQ in many ways is what, what everyone does in, in microbiology generally, whether it's medical or food or whatever. But in the last 10 years, um, you know, everyone, I think, that's listening is, is likely aware of, of the impact that PCR has had uh, in general on biology. I mean, it's difficult to pick up a copy of a, of a newspaper and read the health or science section and not see uh, an article that discusses uh, some some uh, medical revolution that's been brought about by our understanding of, of how life works through looking at genes. Um, and it was a matter of time, really, before that impact kind of came to the area that, uh, that we're in. Um, now, it was about a decade ago that people first started using real-time PCR to look at microbes in the built environment. And that's been a very powerful technique, but uh, it's had many limitations. And, uh, you know, anyone who's used those kinds of methods knows well about the limitations. One of the, uh, one of the difficult uh, aspects is that, that PCR-based methods, although they were kind of held to be uh, the revolution in this area, they really weren't because you know what you're looking for before you start looking for it. That's, that's useful for looking for some kinds of agents, but it wasn't really helpful, I think, for practitioners to do 
sort of a broad uh, what's there kind of test uh, in the same way that we do now with uh, with culture plates or or uh, or trap samples. But, but recently, uh, there have been some really significant advancements in really carrying those PCR-based methods to the next step to be able to use them to characterize everything, not just one or two things or what you might be looking for. So it's, it's really... Uh, those kinds of methods that are that are now starting to have an impact, I think, in this area. And we're going to, over the next uh, five to ten years, see the online in some areas of IAQ practice. So I guess one of the impressions some people got was that the current laboratory, uh, oh, I don't know, business model, is going to change drastically over the next 10 years and, and that some people need to be ready for that, especially people who own laboratories. Would you agree with that? Yeah, sure. I mean, in, in many ways, we've already seen a number of changes. You know, over the last uh, uh, 20 years, we've seen lots of, uh, initially in the, in the mid-1990s, uh, uh, there was a flurry of many small laboratories uh, opening and working, doing lots of good work. And, uh, over maybe the last uh, 15 years, we've started to see lots of consolidations in those laboratories and kind of changes in terms of um, how and when and why uh, environmental sampling is conducted. Um, we've seen increasing levels of, of regulation uh, at, at different levels of government, uh, and that's true in, in the U.S., it's true in Canada as well. And we've seen... Uh, uh, a growing understanding on the part of practitioners about when sampling uh, methods can be useful, when they don't really advance uh, questions. So, uh, you know, I think there have already been a number of changes in on the laboratory side that have changed business models and, and kind of altered that landscape. This is just one more. I'm just, I'm so, you know, you just made my day when you said that uh, someone like yourself who kind of looks at this from above uh, or, you know, looks at it from more of a research uh, side of things said that, uh, I want to make sure I have this right, that there's a, a growing realization from practitioners that these things are changing. Because I, I hear so often from people who are critics of the industry that the practitioners in the industry aren't changing with the times and that we're using these old methods and we're not taking new things into consideration. And I, I'm just curious, is that, you know, I assume that's what you're seeing. You're seeing people are actually changing their ways. And, and, yeah, and yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, the change, the change is slow to some extent, uh, but changes in other areas are, uh, are slow as well. So, um, uh, you know, in uh, in clinical medicine, for example, that's that's an area where, <laughs> for sure, there's a lot of change, but it's slow, and and there are reasons why uh, you know the change isn't uh, uh, isn't isn't a kind of revolutionary change. It's more of an incremental change, and that's just because it lends stability to the area. So I, you know, from my area of practice, and I wouldn't say that I'm looking from from above at all. Uh, I'm looking uh, really laterally. Um, I mean, the, the people who are doing this work are, are sort of the ones who are staring down at it. But I'm kind of looking in, at it from the side as someone who's a laboratory uh, practitioner, but also an academic with a, with a strong interest in the area. But no, I see that, um, that IAQ folks, you know, there's a tremendous amount of interest in that community in, in what's new. How can we use it? Is it worthwhile? Isn't it worthwhile? Uh, you know, what does it mean? It's... Uh, uh, that community has been, been uh, for the last 20 years, as long as I've been involved with it, uh, you know, very forward-looking community. And, um, you know, meeting meeting with some of these these uh, emerging methods in molecular genetics and how those might improve uh, the tools and the, the ability to, to characterize environments and understand health effects, uh, I think this, this community is... Uh, you know, is primed to take those up uh, as long as they can understand uh, what they mean and how they can be applied. You know, I, I'd like to talk more about that uh, emerging, you know, the, the future, so to speak, here. Um, but let's take a little break. We've got to do our halftime. We have to thank our sponsors. And we're going to just run our sponsors real quick, and we're going to come right back to you. Sure. Thank you. 
thanks to our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, we are back for the second half of our interview with Dr. James Scott from the University of Toronto and Sporometrics. Dr. Scott, do we have you back on the line? You do. Great. I, you know, I, I wanted to set this up with the uh, past, a little bit of present. I'd like to do one more present question, if we could. I've been, you know, wrestling with this a little bit um, over time, and, and, and I think you hit it really well in the presentation. We, we have a lot of practitioners out there, and, and a lot of our audience is people who go out and, and do investigations or have to clean up the things that are found during investigations. And a lot of the practitioners out there use sampling in, in various ways. They do some spore trap sampling. They do some uh, culturable, probably not very often. They do some tape lifts. They do some swabs, some bulks, etc. And I, I think there's been a, I think some of them get a bad rap, and and that has been that uh, they're doing these things to try and evaluate health as opposed to evaluating building conditions. And I'm just—I I thought I heard you say in the presentation that these these procedures are perfectly fine for use if you are evaluating building conditions or trying to learn more about the built environment, but they're not very useful for evaluating exposure and health. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, I'd say absolutely. Um, so the uh, there are a number of reasons why, uh, but. Uh, you know, some of the main ones are that the units that we get from air sampling methods aren't, they're not dose relevant units. Uh, dose relevant units are things like milligrams of a contaminant per cubic meter of air or parts per million. And you can't, uh, you can't transform counts on a, on a, a spore trap sample into something that's a dose relevant unit. Um, as well, uh, that count on an air sample, the spore of this fungus or that fungus, you know, it doesn't contain one uh, contaminant. It can contain multiple contaminants. Some of them could be allergens, others could be uh, mycotoxins. There may be immunomodulatory co compounds in there like beta-1,3-D-glucan. It's a cocktail of all kinds of things. And the relative proportion of those things to some extent is governed by the genes of the fungus, but it's also governed by the conditions under which the fungus grew, what it was growing on, the moisture conditions, those kinds of things. So you really... I mean, you may be able to get a, a, a little bit of a very rough sense, but in terms of understanding really that exposure, uh, it, those methods fail. So when we uh, uh, try to understand exposure in the context of population health studies and how uh, particularly indoor environmental exposures relate to the development of, of disease, um, we don't sample air. It's just, uh, it's not a reliable uh, method. We usually sample uh, dusts. So, that, and that's an area that, that has to some extent been used in, in indoor environmental investigation, but I'd say it's, it's a really underused method if your goal is to try and understand 
uh, health exposures. Now, I'm not sure I understood the last. It's an underused method if your goal. So people should use it more if they're trying to determine the health exposures in buildings. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I think if you want to uh, be able to say that, uh, uh, you know, that an environment, that there's a, a higher uh, than average exposure to a particular uh, group of microbial contaminants in, a, in an environment, the thing that you need to look at really is the dust and not the air. So the, the, the case that we run into in, in population health research mostly is, is things like endotoxin and beta-1,3-D glucan. And... Uh, by understanding, uh, first of all, how much dust there is in the environment, that we'd call the dust loading. So if you vacuum uh, from an area of flooring uh, to understand the number of milligrams of fine dust per square meter of floor, uh, and then look at the concentration of, of the contaminant of interest, whether it's an allergen or glucan or something like that, that gives you a sense of what the potential for exposure is in that environment. And that's the thing that's meaningful to health. Uh, now, the, where the organisms originate, uh, it may be from building materials, it may be from all sorts of other sources, but that's a very different question. So if you want to understand something about the, the building environment and the performance of, of the building or a moisture uh, problem or a, some kind of uh, building-related failure, then I think it's reasonable to use, uh, to, to use air sampling and, and bulk material sampling and things like that. But if you want to understand questions that are specific to health questions, then you need to use the methods that uh, the toolkit that, uh, that, that uh, folks who do that kind of work use. If they don't sample air, they sample dust. And what's the current research and, and how available are the types of analysis for people who are doing this? They're trying, like, you know, you've got a building, people are ill, uh, you're, you're trying to just verify that there is a, a condition that, that could be, uh, could be, I don't know, uh, I don't want to say cause, it could be affecting that, I guess. And, and you take some dust samples. You, I thought I heard uh, beta-glucan was one of the things you would look at, but how available is it to do analysis of beta-glucan, or, or should we just not waste our time with that? I, I think I think it's mostly a research method. Uh, I mean, my my commercial laboratory does some amount of that, as do others, but it's not something that I think is really immediately useful to uh, to sort of the IAQ community. I think it's more of a research uh, type method. Okay. Uh, I think uh, I, I think most jurisdictions uh, in the states that have taken a position on indoor molds, for example, are probably just uh, just like. The, the few jurisdictions in Canada that we have that have taken a, a, a more formal codified position on molds, and that is that molds shouldn't be growing in buildings. So uh, if I can establish that there's a mold growing in a building, then I know a priori that it shouldn't be there. So get rid of it. It doesn't really, you know, there, there's no point um, expending a lot of effort uh, trying to understand uh, uh, anything beyond, uh, beyond that. Um, now, with with respect to to the health effects, I'll back up a little bit. Um, there, there's still there's still a lot that we don't really understand about uh, about health effects and exposures to microbes in the built environment. There are some things that are really crystal clear. That is, if you're uh, uh, the, the dust exposure to dust mite allergen is causally related to the development of of asthma and allergic disease. That we know. That's very clear. There are other microbial allergens. Uh, uh, fungal allergens uh, and some plant allergens that that exacerbate those kinds of uh, illnesses. But uh, apart from that, we don't really we haven't the data set to be able to determine those causal linkages. So while we know quite a bit about those, and we know uh, a lot from animal models in terms of what uh, uh, what we expect of of certain of these exposures, we, there are still many many questions that, uh, that remain. So it I. I really think in many ways that it's beyond the scope of, of what the IAQ community can, can sort of bring to these questions, at least alone in the absence of support from, from sort of biomedical research uh, enterprise to be able to even expect to answer questions on, on health effects when, you know, we have, we have very, very large studies uh, that 
have looked at uh, and continue to look at these kinds of effects. And, uh, you know, we, we still have lingering questions. Uh, again, I expect that in uh, the next five to ten years, many of these questions will be answered. So, for example, in the United States, you have the National Children's Study, which is a study of 100,000 uh, children where there's... Uh, uh, a very, very detailed characterization of, of uh, the children from a clinical standpoint and the environments where they live, uh, both from the standpoint of looking at dusts and, and microbes and all kinds of things. And it's, it's work like that, I think, that's going to shed light on, on uh, how we interpret these kinds of, uh, these kinds of findings. You know, I, we're, running a, we're going to run a little late. I don't want to get too off on a tangent, but I, I do have to ask a question yeah. because a lot of our listeners, and, and myself included, we deal with projects where people have health issues in a building. There was a moisture problem in the building. The building has, the moisture problem has been solved. Now we have to help the owner determine how far to go with respect to tearing out for, for instance, carpet. Carpet's a huge issue for our listeners. We have carpet cleaners. We have people who do disaster restoration work. We have a lot of mold remediation, mold investigation type people. And I'm, I'm trying to give them something for now to help them gauge, you know, when do we tear out, remove and replace, or remove it and replace it with some other, other product? Or, you know, um, and I'm wondering if you can help in any way. I don't know if you see what I'm grasping at here or not. Yeah, a little bit. My my PhD thesis uh, was on on dust and carpet, so it it turns out to be an area that I know a little bit about. Okay, great. <laughs> um, but even in even in very normal environments, uh, you know, you can still get a uh, hundred thousand, two hundred thousand colony forming units of a range of fungi from carpet dust. Um, that's that's completely in the absence of indoor growth sites. Uh, carpets are an electrostatic magnet for particles. And uh, that would be good as long as those particles stayed in the carpet, but uh, they don't. And as we walk across carpets, there's a, there's a recent uh, paper that was out uh, a couple of weeks ago in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or it might have been in the Journal of Science, one or the other, uh, on the resuspension of fine particles from indoor environments. And um, uh, it, it echoes things that others have found, and that is that uh, as we go about our day-to-day lives, we're surrounded in this shell of very fine particles. So anyone uh, who has susceptibilities to, uh, to uh, uh, diseases that may be exacerbated by inhalation exposure to those particles, so allergics or asthmatics, um, needs to get rid of the carpets. And that's, uh, you know, that's advice that allergists have been giving their patients for years. Uh, and that that doesn't really change. Um, whether, uh, I mean, preemptively, obviously, if you know that you may have those kinds of susceptibilities, and you can modify your environment accordingly. But uh, when to have a carpet, when not to? I mean, I, you know, it's, the carpets feel kind of nice against your feet, especially when you get out of the, out of bed in the morning and that kind of thing. So, you know, we we all sort of like to have those sorts of plush uh, aspects to our environment, but. For people, particularly people who are susceptible people, it just it may not make sense. So I don't know if that really answers your question. Um, yeah, you know, it, I, I, what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to talk to you off the air on that one a little bit more. <laughs> I, I just don't think we're there yet with with respect no. to the help that we need in the field to make these decisions. It's really tough, Doug. I, I, I agree 100%. And, uh, uh, you know, the same as... It can be extended to to products that we call green products. Uh, you know, some of our work has looked at uh, at trying to understand uh, uh, the use of clean products in, in the built environment. And limonene, for example, uh, which is uh, the the essential oil of citrus, is used very widely as a as a natural cleaner. But we know that when you com- combine the vapor of limonene with ozone, it forms small particles. Uh, we don't know if those are hazardous or if they're not hazardous, but we know that uh, that uniformly that that material does it. So there's, to my mind, there's really no basis at this point, based on what we know in evidence uh, from from medical and scientific research, to be able to say that those natural cleaning products are any healthier than cleaning products that uh, that we might have used prior to those. So there there are still questions that are 
fundamental questions that we can't answer. Absolutely. And I, I but I, I appreciate your attempt at it here and, and, and just letting <laughs> us know that, you know, it's so important to at least know we're, we're, we're not alone in these concerns. Now, we've got a couple of texts I want to get to here, and this will lead us into the future. Um, this is a text from a listener. When in the future can we have reliable molecular mole, molecular, I think, DNA techniques uh, for species identification and also enumeration of indoor microorganisms at a reasonable cost? Five to ten years. Five to ten years. Okay. What's Five a, to ten years. What's a reasonable cost to you? Uh, Twenty bucks. Wow. Okay. Is it... Did I read in your article that it's actually somewhat available now? Yeah, some of these things are. So um, the, the, the places that these methods that I'm talking about, and the methods uh, we'll probably get to, but uh, I'm speaking specifically of next-generation uh, high-throughput DNA sequencing. And this isn't just PCR uh, detection, uh, like uh, ERMI or the, 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 the variants on, on ERMI um, that look for specific things. This is, this is a method that allows you to take a, a complex sample that might have hundreds or thousands of microbes in it, isolate oh. DNA from that sample, so from the entire community, and then sequence all of the DNA in that community. Um, and computationally, then, of course, you need to reassemble it and try to understand the, the composition. But much of that even now is, is automated. So those methods are available uh, Today, we use those methods now to look at things like uh, the human microbiome, so the bacteria and, and fungi and all kinds of things that live on our skin, in our guts, uh, and, uh, and like that. Um, those methods uh, currently are on the order of maybe $200 a sample, $300 a sample, something like that. So, so it's already actually quite economical. <laughs> No, let me let me stop you for just a second. When you say two hundred dollars a sample, three hundred dollars a sample, is that the cost for the person taking the sample and sending it to the laboratory? Is it the cost the laboratory analyzes it at, and then they're going to have to mark it up a little bit? I have a text from a listener yeah, saying, that's, you know, "Yeah, so these I don't know that these methods are commercially available right now. It's certainly not something that uh, that my commercial laboratory does." Uh, but uh, my university laboratory, uh, we, we do a great deal of this kind of work, and, and many others do. There's, there are huge communities of, of folks who do this kind of work in, uh, in clinical research. Um, as well, there, there are a number of groups doing this kind of work environmentally, like the group at, uh, at uh, the Woods Hole Laboratory, uh, headed up by Mitch Sogan, and they're interested in pathogens in water. And these are the same methods that they're applying to look at, uh, at waterborne pathogens in inland lakes and things like that. So the, there are a number of uh, groups with a strong interest in environmental uh, microbiology and clinical microbiology who are already applying these methods. And uh, as I said in my, my talk at IAQA, it's a matter of time before these uh, stand to have an impact on indoor air quality. Now, will I even need a laboratory? Can I just plug this into my, you know, can I collect it? plug it into my computer, have it analyzed without even using a laboratory in 10 years? I think, I think that's a, a technological goal. There's already a, 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 sequence, a sequencing-based uh, platform that was released. Uh, it was just uh, about a week before my talk in uh, Las Vegas by Oxford Nanopore Technologies out of, uh, out of the UK. And I should say that I don't have any commercial interest in these guys. I, I probably wish I, I'd bought stock in them, but I didn't. <laughs> um, but uh, they have a, a sequencing platform. It's one of these high-throughput sequencing platforms that plugs into a USB port on a computer. And uh, the, the suggestion is that it's going to cost uh, under, uh, under 1000 bucks. Uh, I don't know how, how good it would be would be necessarily it's uh i'm not sure that they've had the commercial launch but they did have the uh, the announcement of the thing um but you know if if it holds up to what uh what we expect of of a single strand dna sequencing uh platform then it will really revolutionize uh a, a community of of people who use uh, high throughput uh, dna sequencing much more so than than any other technology we've seen in the last uh, decade 
All right. Now, here's the big, you know, the big question, I guess. We get all this data, all this information, hundreds, thousands of, of data points on, on and, and a much better accuracy than ever before. What do we do with it? When will we know well, what to do? When will we know what to do with it? You know what I mean? We need, uh, first of all, a couple of things have to happen. Uh, we need uh, the the medical research studies to catch up. So studies like the the National Children's Study in the United States, and in Canada we have a study called the Canadian Healthy Infant Longitudinal Development Study. That's uh, that's also thousands of of children where we're looking at house dust and. Uh, various aspects of indoor environment, and we're looking very closely at the health of, of children. We need studies like that to incorporate these methods to be able to, to to tell us what they mean in terms of predicting health. And so that's one one piece that has to happen, and that's happening. Uh, the second piece is we need uh, we need to be able to have to draw the line between what these methods can tell us, these new methods, and what the methods that we use can tell us. So we need some kind of bridge. And that's uh, the Sloan Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation out of uh, Manhattan. has uh, It's a charitable uh, foundation, but it's uh, committed uh, a large amount of money, about $10 million already, to uh, its indoor uh, microbiology program, uh, funding a bunch of research studies, uh, many of which are trying to build these links uh, that will help us ultimately to interpret uh, the data that these new methods can provide. I think that it's only only once that we get some of that information, which I really see coming uh, in the next in the next five years, that that practitioners will be in a position to start thinking about uh, how these methods might be employed. Fascinating. That's very interesting. Now, I just want to uh, shout out to Dr. Tang out there. If you did, we oh, he just sent me another one. Is the result quantitative or qualitative? for each species identified. And, and Wei, let me know if we answered your question on, on the cost. Go ahead, Dr. Scott. Um, I, the result should be semi-quantitative, and that probably doesn't help. Um, ultimately, I think that it's possible to do these methods quantitatively. Currently, uh, we use these methods semi-quantitatively, so the number of copies of, of a particular sequence that we get is somewhat reflective of, of the burden of those, those microbes in the sample. But if we want to be strictly quantitative, uh, we, we would uh, conduct one of these tests using high-throughput sequencing, and then we would come back in to look for specific organisms using real-time PCR to quantitate. Uh, okay. So currently, currently, I'd say that they're not uh, they're not completely quantitative, but uh, all of my work with these methods has been based on gut microbiome in infants. So we've I've got a laboratory at the university right now that's full of diapers, and we've been looking at the influence of antibiotic use in early life on changes in the gut microbes in babies, uh, which we think uh, is one of the one of the underlying reasons for the uh, the asthma epidemic currently is uh, the disruption of, of gut microbes by antibiotic use. So I can tell you that when we when we apply these high throughput sequencing methods to baby poop, uh, what we see quantitatively quite reflects what we expect would be present in the stool uh, samples of, of babies, and it's uh, the real time PCR that we've done to look at some of the more common microbes has confirmed that. So I think I think down the line they're likely to be to be fairly robustly quantitative methods. Currently they're not completely. Well, you just you just raised like twenty five more questions in my mind when you brought that subject up. Thank you, but obviously we won't make it, to, it into that today. But uh, what we'd like to do now, Doctor Scott, I, I really want to bring our technical director, Doctor Dietrich Wow, on. We go to what we call a roundup. We're going to pause for just a moment, bring Dieter on, and uh, go around the horn here one time and ask have everybody ask one final question. Great. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw All right, let's go around. Let's, Cliff, I know you wanted to start first. Let's do you, then Dr. Wild, then I myself, did. and Val. 
Val. I just wanted to thank you for your comment, Doctor, on green, green cleaning products and limonene and you know, just there's a lot we don't know and it's just unfortunate that the advertising gets a little carried away and uh, you know people are misled but thanks for your comment no problem all right let's go to dr dietrich well now before i bring him on here doctor i don't know if you know Dieter or know of him but he's my he's my like my second father here and he's been with us for the last five years and we appreciate that tremendously and he's an old school cih phd from the university of pittsburgh and uh, he listens to every show religiously and, and has comments at the end. So I just kind of wanted to give you an idea of where, uh, who we're bringing on with you here. And I, uh, he's going to have some comments for sure. And then we'll let you follow up after that. Great. Sure. Dieter, let me correct that. Old school with the most open mind I know. Dr. Wow. Well, that is that is fine. You know, I have gray hair, and uh, <laughs> and uh, I attended schools and universities for a long time. And thank you for my good friend Beethoven over there, who was German, but he made most of his money and compositions in Austria. Austria. <laughs> I think he made more money over there. That's all right. Uh, do I have uh, comments? Good God, do I have comments? Thank you very much. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Scott, for uh, your first 10 minutes to turn us back by about, what, 300 or so years with Leuvenhoek and Charles Darwin. I mean, two absolutely brilliant, brilliant people uh, who revolutionized uh, <laughs> the whole field of science. It's just unbelievable. I wish I could have breakfast with them or lunch or dinner, for that matter, or for that matter, a beer. Um, <laughs> but um, I, 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 I liked uh, the, the one comment you made, uh, uh, Dr. Scott, is uh, I think we are fortunate to know that there is a lot of work to be done in the future. And uh, I like that. I like that. I'm, I'm at the end of my career I'm not going to stand in the front line anymore. I don't have a laboratory anymore. I don't have students anymore. But I hope there will be other people who will pick up where I left off. Uh, yeah, we talked about Leuvenhoek and uh, the microscope. And uh, Joe knows how much I like and know about microscopes. He has like $25,000 of a microscope in his house. <laughs> I happen to have the um, uh, uh, the objectives and eyepieces for it. And the, anyway, uh, another great, and that goes exactly where I'm coming from, what Dr. Scott said, antibiotics. I'm 100% against antibiotics. When I was a kid, I didn't know what asthma was. I didn't know what autism was. I didn't know what breast cancer was. And I think we are overwhelming that poor little system that has just been born, and we got to vaccinate it. You do it this and this and this for somebody to make 50 bucks. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. And I have, and Joe knows the answer, I have a very good example myself. I was born and raised in Calcutta, India, when nobody knew what a syringe was. I grew up in Germany during the war uh, without water, without electricity, without gas, without anything. I never, ever got vaccinated. I have, as we found out later on, a beautiful homemade, tailor-made ant <laughs> antibodies in my bloodstream. <laughs> it is great. Now, um, oh, Dieter, let me ask a question. We, you're not saying we shouldn't use antibiotics at all, though, right? I mean, oh, just no, 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 no. Okay. This, 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 the vaccinations, antibiotics are fine. Okay, okay. They're fine. They're fine. I don't do take them every day. We know that. And then, then we get into the problems that we have in hospitals where you know, if you want to get a good infection, stay around uh, long enough in the hospital and you're going to get it. <laughs> right. uh, no question about that. Um, the other problem, uh, uh, not with Dr. Scott at all, on the contrary, um, if, uh, the, the, the one point he made is people, Darwin, Darwin realized 
that he was in the middle of the ocean and he collected particles that didn't obviously didn't come from the ocean. And of course, we know that today, and it is it's it's incredible how good we got at that. At, uh, measuring uh, radioactive materials in the air when uh, Chernobyl exploded or whatever, uh, imploded or whatever, when the Chernobyl problem started. Yeah, we could, we could measure a day or two later what was in the air. It's unbelievable. And we are on the, on the, on the footsteps of doing much more with blood samples, as Dr. Scott uh, mentioned. Very, very good. I like that one. But yeah, there are, there are tons of other heroes in, in, in my life, uh, Semmelweis and um, uh, uh, the, the, the French scientists who were there, the German scientists who were there. Uh, it's it's uh, the, the, the British, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not zeroing in on any one of them. What these guys did and their foresight, and I said, boy, there is something wrong here. I don't know what it is, but if we do this and this and this, we do it. The other problem, and again, nothing to do with Dr. Scott, I worked at the University of Pittsburgh for, what, 30 years or something like this, and I found out that sometimes I had a problem communicating with MDs because they were, they thought they were at the top of the food chain and everything was below them, and I said, hey, I work for 10 years and I'm a multimillionaire and I retire. Uh, I don't like that. And it, in many instances, I found out that I knew a little bit more as a mechanical engineer. <laughs> I knew a little bit more about the lung, and I knew a little bit about the outer ear, the middle ear, and the inner ear. And, yeah, they had lectures on that. They didn't know. I mean, they, everybody knows that loud noise produces hearing loss, noise-induced hearing loss. But... Um, I think that is one of the problems, and I like to, uh, uh, Dr. Scott to talk about this. And I said, look, I'm working with all of them. I'm not the best in the world. I'm not the greatest in the world, but I can learn from other people, and they can learn from me. I have absolutely no problem with that whatsoever. Look. And I better shut up because it's <laughs> one minute past one. All right, Dieter. Thanks, as always. Dr. Scott, let me out. Let me take something that, that Dieter said and kind of get my final uh, question in. I mean, you know, he was talking about some of the past scientists and some of the great contributions they made. And I didn't hear you mention one of the current people that I, I think people should be aware of. It seems like there's kind of a a second revolution in science going on right now. And one of the people that I, I saw speak last year was Dr. Uh, Craig Venter, J. Craig Venter. And, and I, I believe a lot of the work you're doing was, you know, somehow spun out of some of the things he's doing. I don't know if you want to comment on, on some of the work he's doing and how it ties in with what you do. Uh, sure. Well, Craig, uh, Craig Venter in the 1980s, of course, was the, was the fellow who discovered uh, the, uh, something called the polymerase chain reaction. Oh, yeah. which, which uh, is is a surprisingly easy uh, method for uh, photocopying DNA. I mean, so easy you can you can uh, do it at home in your kitchen without any any uh, technology whatsoever and just a very few reagents. Um, and uh, that discovery has catapulted the entire science of biology and and all of medicine. Uh, into into orbit from from where it was prior to to that discovery and uh, when when Venter first developed the method uh, it you know it's one of these stories where it was so revolutionary that no one knew what to do with it <laughs> and uh, it's taken really the last thirty years to catch up and to discover all of these things that we can do with that method and subsequently. Others have discovered, uh, you know, ways to leverage PCR and get it to do really phenomenally interesting things. So I, you know, to echo something that Dieter said, this, um, it, it must be satisfying to, to kind of, uh, you know, sit from his perspective as having, having seen what's happened in, uh, in the sciences uh, for so long and to understand that, uh, that there is such, a, such a, a, an exciting future for, for this area. Like, we're really at the brink of some extraordinarily interesting things. Um, so, uh, you know, Venter, uh, Venter is one of these, uh, one of these guys. He's sort of the, the modern version of, uh, of, uh, Dr. Semmelweis and, uh, and, uh, 
and Darwin and uh, and so on. But uh, you know, it's good to know that these things continue, and we've got a lot to look forward to. We we do, we really do, and it's it's fascinating. I I really appreciate you coming on. And and before we go, I, I know you're a busy man, but if Val, could you you want to ask the last question here because we always like to give you the last word. Yeah, Dr. Scott, um, thank you for joining us today. Is there anything that you would like to add to our conversation today? Uh, no, I think, uh, you know, this, is, this has been a lot of fun. I, I uh, of course, like to talk to people who, uh, who are interested in these kinds of things. So it's, uh, it's always a pleasure to, uh, uh, you know, to talk to folks like you and, and also your listeners, uh, you know, who, who may be sitting back and uh, scratching their head and thinking, you know, what, uh, what might uh, the future be like and what perhaps can we do with some of these methods. And it's really, you know, it sort of comes from people who, who sit back in their chair and, uh, and think about these things. That's where the revolutions happen. You know, those, those are the folks who think, uh, think about, uh, uh, you know, what the next application is going to be. And that's, that's where we're going to be in, in 10 years. So, you know, I'm, I was excited to be here and thanks for, uh, for speaking with me. Well, we, we appreciate you joining. And, and is your paper, is that something that uh, people can get freely? Should they email you? Do you should I post a, a link to it? How do you how do you want to handle that, uh, or is that? Yeah, either, either or. Absolutely, if they want to email me, uh, my email address is jscott at sporometrics dot com. So that's s p o r o m e t r i c s dot com. Uh, feel free to email me, uh, or if uh, if uh, you have a copy, I believe I sent you a, a copy. You could uh, you could post that as a link as well. Um, or, you know, if anyone wants additional information, they, they could feel free to contact me. Yeah, I'd love to get this out to the people who, who attend some of our courses and so on. I just think it's the information is so valuable for them, and, and I couldn't agree w- more with what you said. Some of those people will be the ones who will take this, you know, the revolutionary information and figure out what we're going to do with it, you know. and uh, That's that's going to be the issue, I think. Yes, absolutely. And, and uh, we really appreciate you uh, helping us move in that direction, and hopefully we can get you back here someday. Excellent. All right. Joe Cliff, guys, it's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you. Thank you. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, uh, Dr. James Scott from the University of Toronto and Sporometrics, of course, to my co-host, the Z-Man. Great show. Uh, uh, to technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, but most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Thank you all for being here. Come back and join us again next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.